Chapter Five of the Story of Ab. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Christine Blashford. The Story of Ab by Stanley Waterloo. Chapter Five: A Great Enterprise. What always happens when two boys, not yet fairly in their teens, meet at first aggressively, and then each gradually overcoming this apprehension of the other, decide upon a close acquaintance and long comradeship. Their talk is firmly optimistic, and they constitute much of the world. As for Ab and Oak, when there had come to them an ease in conversation, there dawned gradually upon each the idea that next to himself the other was probably the most important personage in the world, fitting companion and confederate of a boy who, in an incredibly short space of time, was going to become a man and do things on a tremendous scale. Seated upon the rock, a point of ease and vantage, they talked long of what two boys might do, and so earnest did they become in considering their possible great exploits that Ab demanded of Oak that he go with him to his home. This was a serious matter. It was a no slight thing for a boy of that day, allowed a playground within certain limits adjacent to his cave home, to venture far away, but this in Oak's life was a great occasion. It was the first time he had ever met and talked with a boy of his age, and he became suddenly reckless, assenting promptly to Ab's proposal. They ran along the forest paths together toward Ab's cave, clucking in their queer language, and utilizing in that short journey most of the brief vocabulary of the day in anticipatory account of what they were going to do. Ab's father and mother rather approved of Oak. They even went so far as to consent that Ab might pay a return visit upon the succeeding day, though it was stipulated that the father, and this was a demand the mother made, should accompany the boy upon most of the journey. One ear knew Oak's father very well. Oak's father, Stripeface, was a man of standing in the widely scattered community. Stripeface was so called because in a casual, and on his part altogether uninvited encounter with a cave bear when he was a young man, a sweep of the claws of his adversary had ploughed furrows down one cheek, leaving scars thereafter which were livid streaks. One ear and Stripeface were good friends. Sometimes they hunted together, they had fought together, and it was nothing out of the way, and but natural that Ab and Oak should become companions. So it came that One Ear went across the forest with his boy the next day, and visited the cave of Stripeface, and that the two young cubs went out together buoyant and in conquering mood, while the grown men planned something for their own advantage. Certainly the boys matched well. A finer pair of youngsters of eight or nine years of age could hardly be imagined than these two who sallied forth that afternoon. They send very fine boys nowadays to our great high schools in the United States, and to rugby in Eton and Harrow in England, but never went forth a finer pair to learn things. No smattering of letters or law of any printed sort had these rugged youths, but their eyes were piercing as those of the eagle, the grip of their hands was strong, their pace was swift when they ran upon the ground, and their course almost as rapid when they swung along the treetops. They were self-possessed and ready and alert, and prepared to pass an examination for admission to any university of the time, that is, to any of nature's universities, where matriculation depended upon prompt conception of existing dangers and the ways of avoiding them and of all adroitness in attainments which gave food and shelter and safety. Eh, but they were a gallant pair, these two young gentlemen who burst forth, owning the world entirely and feeling a serene confidence in their ability, united to maintain their rights, and their ambition soon took a definite turn. They decided that they must kill a horse. The wild horse of the time, already referred to as esteemed for his edible qualities, was in the opinion of the cave people but of moderate value otherwise. He was abundant, ranging in herds of hundreds along the pampas of the great Thames Valley, and furnished forth abundant food for man as well as the wild beasts, when they could capture him. His skin, though, was not counted of much worth. Its short hair afforded little warmth in cloak or breech-clout, and the tanned pelt became hard and uncomfortable when it dried after a wetting. 
Still, there were various uses for this horse's hide. It made fine strings and thongs, and the beast's flesh, as has been said, was a staple of the larder. The first great resolve of Ab and Oak, these two gallant soldiers of fortune, was that alone and unaided they would circumvent and slay one of these wild horses, thereby astonishing their respective families, at the same time gaining the means for filling the stomachs of those families to repletion, and altogether covering themselves with glory. Not in a day nor in a week were the plans of these youthful warriors and statesmen matured. The wild horse had long since learned that the creature man was as dangerous to it as were any of the fierce four-footed animals which hunted it, and its scent was good and its pace was swift, and it went in herds and avoided doubtful places. Not so easy a task as it might seem was that which Ab and Oak had resolved upon. There must be some elaborate device to attain their end, but they were confident. They had noted often what older hunters did, and they felt themselves as good as anybody. They plotted long and earnestly, and even made a mental distribution of their quarry, deciding what should be done with its skin and with its meat, far in advance of any determination upon a plan for its capture and destruction. They were boys. There was no objection from the parents. They knew that the boys must learn to become hunters, and if the two were not now capable of taking care of themselves in the wood, then they were but disappointing offspring. Consent secured, the boys acted entirely upon their own responsibility, and to make their subsequent plans clearer, it may be well to explain a little more of the geography of the region. The cave of Ab was on the north side of the stream, where the rocky banks came close together with a little beach at either side, and the cave of Oak was perhaps a mile to the westward, on the same side of the stream, and with very similar surroundings. On the south side of the river, opposite the high banks between the two caves, the land was a prairie valley reaching far away. On the north side as well there was at one place a little valley, but it reached back only a few hundred yards from the river, and was surrounded by the forest-crowned hills. The close-standing oaks and beeches afforded, in emergency, a highway among their ranches, and along this pathway the boys were comparatively safe. Either could climb a tree at any time, and of the animals that were dangerous in the treetops there were but few. In fact there was only one of note, a tawny cat-like creature, not numerous and resembling the lynx of the present day. Almost in the midst of the little plain or valley, on the north side of the river, rose a clump of trees, and in this the two boys saw means afforded them for a realisation of their hopes. The wild horses fed daily in the valley to the north, as in the greater one to the south of the river, but there also, in the high grass, as upon the south, sometimes lurked the great beasts of prey, and to be far away from a tree upon the plain was an unsafe thing for a caveman. From the forest edge to the clump of trees was not more than two minutes' rush for a vigorous boy, and it was this fact which suggested to the youths their plan of capture of the horse. The homes of the cavemen were located, when possible, where the refuge of safety overhung closely the river's bank, and where the non-climbing animals must pass along beneath them, but even at that period of few men and abundant animal life, there had developed an acuteness among the weaker beasts, and they had learned to avoid certain paths that had proved fatal to their brethren. They were numerous in the plains and comparatively careless there, relying upon their speed to escape more dangerous wild beasts, but they passed rarely beneath the ledges, where a weighty rock dropped suddenly meant certain death. It was not a task entirely easy for the cavemen to have meat with regularity, flush as was the life about them. Now devices must be resorted to, and Ab and Oak were about to employ one not infrequently successful. The clam of the period, particularly the clam along this reach of the upper Thames, was a marvel in his make-up. He was as large as he was luscious, as abundant as he was both, and was a great feature in the food supply of the time. Not merely was he a feature in the food supply, but in a mechanical way, and the first object sought by the boys after their plan had been agreed upon, was the shell of the great clam. 
They had no difficulty in securing what they wanted, for strewn all about each cave were the big shells in abundance. Sharp-edged, firm-backed, one of these shells made an admirable little shovel, something with which to cut the turf and throw up the soil, a most useful implement in the hands of the river-haunting people. The idea of the youngsters was simply this. Their rendezvous should be at that point in the forest nearest the clump of trees, standing solitary in the valley below. They would select the safest hours, and then from the high ground make a sudden dash to the tree-clump. They would be watchful, of course, and seek to avoid the class of animals for whom boys made admirable luncheon. Once at the clump of trees and safely ensconced among the branches, they could determine wisely upon the next step in their adventure. They were very knowing, these young men, for they had observed their elders. What they wanted to do, what was the end and aim of all this recklessness, was to dig a pit in this rich valley-land close to the clump of trees, a pit say some ten feet in length by six feet in breadth, and seven or eight feet in depth. That meant a gigantic labour. Gillian, of the toilers of the sea, assigned to himself hardly a greater task. These were boys of the cave kind, and must perforce conduct themselves originally. As to the details of the plan, well, they were only vague as yet, but rapidly assuming a form more definite. The first thing essential for the boys was to reach the clump of trees. It was just before noon one day when they swung together on a tree branch sweeping nearly to the ground, and at a point upon the hill directly opposite the clump. This was the time selected for their first dash. They studied every square yard of the long grass of the little valley with anxious eyes. In the distance was feeding a small drove of wild horses, and further away, close by the riverside, upreared occasionally what might be the antlers of the great elk of the period. Between the boys and the clump of trees there was no movement of the grass nor any sign of life. They could discern no trace of any lurking beast. "'Are you afraid?' asked Ab. "'Not if we run together.' "'All right,' said Ab. "'Let's go it with a rush.' The slim brown bodies dropped lightly to the ground together, each of the boys clasping one of the clamshells. Side by side they darted down the slope and across through the deep grass until the clump of trees was reached, when, like two young apes, they scrambled into the safety of the branches. The tree up which they had clambered was the largest of the group and of dense foliage. It was one of the huge conifers of the age, but its branches extended to within perhaps thirty feet of the ground, and from the greatest of these side branches reached out, growing so close together as to make almost a platform. It was but the work of a half-hour for these boys, with their arboreal gifts, to twine additional limbs together and to construct for themselves a solid nest and lookout where they might rest at ease, at a distance above the greatest leap of any beast existing. In this nest they curled themselves down and, after much clucking debate, formulated their plan of operation. Only one boy should dig at a time, the other must remain in the nest as lookout. Swift to act in those days were men, because necessity had made it a habit to them, and swifter still, as a matter of course, were impulsive boys. Their tree-nest fairly made, work they decided must begin at once. The only point to be determined upon was regarding the location of the pit. There was a tempting spread of green herbage some hundred feet to the north and east of the tree, a place where the grass was high, but not so high as it was elsewhere. It had been grazed already by the wandering horses, and it was likely that they would visit the tempting area again. There it was finally settled, should the pit be dug. It was quite a distance from the tree, but the increased chances of securing a wild horse by making the pit in that particular place more than offset, in the estimation of the boys, the added danger of a longer run for safety in an emergency. The only question remaining was as to who should do the first digging, and who be the first lookout. There was a violent debate upon this subject. "'I will go and dig, and you shall keep watch,' said Oak. "'No, I'll dig, and you shall watch,' was Ab's response. "'I can run faster than you.' Oak hesitated and was reluctant. He was sturdy, this young gentleman, but Ab possessed somehow the mastering spirit. It was settled finally that Ab should dig and Oak should watch, and so Ab slid down the tree, clamshell in hand, and began labouring vigorously at the spot agreed upon. 
It was not a difficult task for a strong boy to cut through tough grass roots with the keen edge of the clamshell. He outlined roughly and rapidly the boundaries of the pit to be dug, and then began chopping out sods, just as the workman, preparing to garnish some park or lawn, begins his work to-day. Meanwhile Oak, all eyes, was peering in every direction. His place was one of great responsibility, and he recognised the fact. It was a tremendous moment for the youngsters. End of chapter 5